Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast. We're on season five now and we're lining up some really great guests. Today is no exception. I'm really, really excited to talk to Dr. Steve Simpson, Professor Steve Simpson, who is um, a Professor of Marine Biology and Global Change at the University of Bristol. So Steve, thanks for coming on board and chatting to me. Yeah, no, absolute pleasure. Good to see you, Sean. Yeah, you too. We uh, we spent quite a lot of time talking in the last few months on this boat journey I did, so we'll get to that in a little bit. But um, I've seen you described and I've seen you talking online, Steve, um, on kind of uh, YouTube, on your TEDx talk and things, and you've described yourself as a, a self-confessed ocean optimist. Um, and definitely that's something that came through when we were talking to you for our project Changing Planet Britain's Wildest. Um, it was really, really great to collaborate with each other, and we'll talk to you a little bit about that. But first of all, I guess, can you give us a kind of a, a potted history or a kind of intro to who is Steve Simpson and, and how come you became this marine biologist and ocean optimist? Sure. OK, um, so I grew up in North London um, and so didn't spend much time by the sea. Um, occasional family holidays I'd spend you know, digging around in rock pools. And um, when I was a teenager, I started surfing a bit, started um, scuba diving a little bit um, but I had spent a lot of my time fishing um, the lakes reservoirs canals of North London um, and just trying to understand the behavior of fish trying to really become that fish in my own imagination and see the world from their perspective um, and that really just captured my imagination I think that there was all this life under the surface of the water that you, it was hidden from us um, and yet it was something that you could uh, um, um, engage with and participate in. Um, and there's, you know, there's obviously some quite close links between some of the work that um, the, um, the conservation agencies do, the environment agency um, and uh, recreational anglers. Um, and so that probably was my entry into the world of aquatic animals. Um, and so I went to university to study marine biology and um, and that really just blew my tiny mind, my little London-based city boy mind, as to the diversity of marine animals, the uh, phenomenal diversity of marine environments, different ecosystems. Um, I was lucky to go and spend some time in Mozambique working on a coral reef project at the end of my first year of undergraduate um, study and there met well, that was my first encounter with a coral reef ecosystem where suddenly in front of my eyes you had hundreds of different species of fish thousands of other species of invertebrates and and um, uh, marine mammals uh, turtles all interacting with each other perfectly happy to have you observing them so it's very different say to walking through a woodland where you can hear animals but you rarely see them you've got to be a really good bird watcher to actually see the animal the, the bird in the canopy but out on a coral reef these fish just get on with their lives and it was just a a wonderful introduction to the um to the complex lives of marine animals um I uh, so I finished studying marine biology um uh, at undergraduate I went and did a master's um course really thinking that I wanted to work in the United Nations in developing world fisheries 
Um, and I went out to the Caribbean working with a conservation department on trying to uh, um, measure the arrival of baby coral reef fish into a coral reef ecosystem. So most fish develop out at sea in the plankton, come back to settle onto the reef and if you can measure the number of fish coming in, you've, had a, you've got a good idea then of how strong the fishery will be two or three years later when those fish have got big enough to catch and to eat. Um, but as much as I was trying to understand and measure this, I realised that the scientific literature really didn't have very much going for it. It was a very young science. It were lots of big unknowns. And to me and my kind of imagination, that just sparked all sorts of opportunities to, to make new discoveries. And I think that's one of the things that, that the marine environment, the ocean just keeps delivering is... is is the most um, surprising discoveries. Um, so much of it is unexplored. Um, and so I've spent probably the last 20 years or so trying to understand the behaviour of fish and how they find their way into particular habitats, um, what that um, environment really means to that uh, fish and, and what joining a community in that um, environment means. And one of the things that I've found has been really fundamental in, in, in guiding animal behaviour in the ocean is the soundscape, the noise made by the, the thousands of species in an environment uh, put together, create a soundscape, much like you might hear in a forest or in a savanna or even in an urban environment. You've got all the different sounds of things happening around you. Um, and you put all of that together, there's a lot of information in it. And I've spent the last 20 years or so trying to decode that soundscape to work out what information's in it and why different animals use it at different times in their life um, to try and achieve what they need to in, in terms of impressing each other or in terms of trying to find somewhere to live. Yeah, so it must be quite exciting to be part of that early you know, early area of research and discovery and making new discoveries over your career as well, right? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I was thinking about this the other day. We, we published a study recently where we had been listening to coral reefs um, in uh, Indonesia and writing down these different sounds that we could hear in the recordings. And most of them, we realise, are sounds that have never been heard by a human before, because it really is that young. The last 20 or 30 years, we've been starting to dip a hydrophone or a recording device into the water. And before that, there's, you know, really human ears don't work particularly well underwater. So if you go somewhere new and drop a hydrophone, you're likely to be hearing animals that have never been heard before. So that, you know, it's, it's, it's as if there are suddenly a new mountain range that nobody's explored or there's a whole continent that someone's not bitten, you know, nobody has visited um, in terms of that opportunity for discovery. Lots and lots to learn. So for listeners, um, just as a bit of background as to how I know Steve, um, we set off myself and um, Paul Ramos, another vet and a couple of other explorers and, and filmmakers um, on an adventure series, a documentary series, hopefully coming out this year called Changing Planet, Britain's Wildest. And we set out to go the whole length of Britain uh, to Britain's wildest place, St Kilda, by sailboat and uh, and get back to COP26 in time in Glasgow um, to bring ocean health and the importance of ocean health to COP26 because sadly it wasn't on the agenda. We'll talk about that in a bit um, and how that how crazy that is. But um, Steve, you set us a challenge, didn't you, on that journey because um, there was uh, something that you would have liked to have done for quite a while and you saw an opportunity and, and set us a challenge to, to do it, didn't you? 
And it was amazing, you know, uh, to to meet to meet this kind of this ragtag crew of people who hadn't spent their lives sailing. You know, they you'd obviously all each done lots of different. And no, that's right, done lots of adventuring, but not much of it on a small sailing boat. Um, to be then taking on in you know in the autumn some fairly wild conditions across the British Isles. Um, to me, just you know, it smacked of an amazing opportunity to try and dip hydrophones, take recordings in places where nobody had been before with with a recording device. So there's only a few places around the British Isles that people have been taking recordings. You were going to a lot of other places, including some quite iconic marine environments. So some of the restoration sites that are really capturing the, the yeah, capturing the uh, imagination of people at the moment, but also um, established marine protected areas, uh, conservation zones, some fairly pristine environments, and some of the more rare habitats that we still have in parts of the British Isles. So it was a great opportunity to be able to, you know, to, to be able to give you some recording gear and then to be able to, all of us, have a listen to some of these environments for the first time ever. And I think you really laid down, uh, a, you know, a, an amazing archive of recordings now that we can compare to in future years, in future decades, um, and listen to see how the ocean is uh, either... Um, maintaining its health or it's uh, deteriorating or hopefully in some places it's recovering. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk about, about some of the specific findings we had and things, but just kind of going back to basics, can you explain um, two things, I suppose? One, like why is ocean health so important right now and how does the soundscape allow us to kind of check in on that yeah yeah i mean the, the ocean obviously is two-thirds of our planet it's most of all the habitable area of our planet and um, the ocean is producing about half of all the atmospheric oxygen so including the, the oxygen we depend on for uh, for breathing um, the ocean is also the buffer against climate change it absorbs almost all global warming um, and so as a result, really, the ocean is our security blanket against ourselves um, in the, um, anything that we're doing to destabilise the planet. The ocean is working overtime to try and keep, um, keep the, the stability of our planet going. It controls our climate. Um, and healthy oceans are not just um, the right kind of chemistry, the right kind of water temperatures. It's the life inside the ocean that really is driving that. Um, and so a healthy ecosystem is balanced. It's um, probably diverse. So uh, one of the things we really listen for is the diversity of sounds um, produced by a whole range of different animals. Um, it's the population size. So you're listening for a healthy population, lots of different um, individuals making sounds um, in the case of uh, uh, the acoustics. Um, and so um, and and ideally conditions that are predictable year after year. So although in the British Isles we obviously have warmer water in the summer, colder water in the winter, it's generally the same sort of range from the summer to the winter. At least that was true until about 30 years ago where the waters have started warming. And so across the world now we see that the summer maximum temperature is getting warmer and the winter bottom temperature the lowest the coldest temperature again is also getting warmer so one of the things we realize that does is it moves animals they have preferred temperature ranges they live in and as the thermal niche 
that that animal prefers is moving generally towards the poles, then that animal, um, that, that species will also be on the move. So that's one of the things that we're concerned about, that waters are warming. Um, and then obviously things, more local threats like fishing, so removing some of the animals that make sound, or uh, pollution events, or um, uh, mining, or coral mining, things like that. You can, you can hear the sound of the habitat deteriorating because you lose some of the orchestra. You know, if you imagine the, uh, um, a healthy ecosystem full of lots of different animals that produce lots of different types of sound, if those sounds start to disappear, you realise that that's a, a system that's becoming simpler. And generally in ecology, a simple system is a fragile system. Yeah, it's one kind of teetering on the brink of, of collapse, isn't it? If you start to lose some parts in it. I've described it a lot. Kind of people don't really know about kind of, um, you know, joined up ecosystems and things like playing a game of Jenga. If you're pulling out little parts all the time, yeah. eventually the whole thing will collapse. <clears throat> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one of the things that we realise by listening to the ocean is that we we're able to hear, we're able to hear the diversity of, of animals living in an environment, but we can often hear animals that we never see. So it gives us a very different opportunity to assess the, the community of animals, to be able to measure the health of the ecosystem um, by listening out for the cryptic animals, the ones that are really hidden, the camouflaged animals, the ones that live inside the habitat. So, you know, buried in the sand or deep inside a coral reef. Um, and also the nocturnal animals. So half of the animals that you that you will never see are the ones that come out and are active at night. And and they're often very vocal um, because they can't see each other. So they tend to shout at each other when they're off uh, hunting for food or, or, uh, or whatever they're doing. Yeah, I was so surprised when we started taking these recordings. Obviously, we had the day with you where you showed us how to, how to do it and, and how to do it properly and things. But when we started actually listening, it was incredible, like what we were pulling off. And different times, as you say, there was like a dawn chorus, which I'm very familiar with, with birds. But then there was mm. a dusk chorus of a whole different soundscape under there as well. Yeah. And I know you've mentioned before about kind of what we used to think about the ocean and Jack Cousteau calling it the silent world because they just didn't have the technology back then to listen, did they? No, that's right. You know, I, I mean, Jacques Cousteau is, is you know, we, we, th we owe him a lot for inventing the aqualung, for find, making it possible for us to be able to go underwater and to take air with us and to be able to explore the underwater world. But that scuba gear is noisy. So when you're scuba diving, you generally can't hear the animals around you because your bubbles are so loud. Um, and it's only really once you're either snorkeling um, or you're ideally using some kind of recording device that you really start to lock into the soundscape um, and, and, and really experience that diversity of sounds that, that make up the marine soundscape. Yeah. And uh, you talked to me before as well about kind of in your early career or like some of your students kind of suggesting topics to research and, and how sound affected things. Tell us about the uh, the experiments about the kind of um, fish larvae and even the coral larvae responding to sound and, and coming back to repopulate a reef. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, you know, uh, going back to trying to understand how larval fish find their way home, one of the possibilities was that they use sound. And so our early experiments involved taking swimming pool speakers that you might hang in your pool if you're a synchronised swimming team and you want to keep beat underwater. 
Um, but taking recordings of coral reefs, playing them back through a swimming pool speaker next to a small reef or next to a light trap, which um, fish are generally att- attracted to. And you could, by doing that, we found that the fish were really highly attracted to the sounds that the reef was making. And that sound is all the snapping shrimp clicking away and then the pops and grunts and croaks from the fish. Um, we uh, found that if we took recordings in different kinds of reefs, then we could actually call in particular species of fish because they've all got preferences for where they want to go and live. And the sound of the community is a really good way of knowing what the what the habitat is like, um, because different types of habitats attract different species. Um, to my amazement, when a group in uh, Curacao in the Caribbean asked if they could use some of our speakers to play back sounds to baby corals, so they'd been collecting coral spawn as the corals were spawning um, uh, one night, and they had these tiny larval corals in the lab. They wanted to see whether uh, they're kind of probably the size of a pinhead. You can just about see them with the naked eye. Um, But they're really just a bag of cells, you know, that just drift around in the water. Um, And they said, let's play some sounds to these coral larvae and see if they respond. Sure enough, these coral larvae all started moving towards the speakers and we just couldn't even believe it was happening. But then when we look at them under the microscope, you realise that on the surface of the coral larvae are these tiny hairs And each one of those hairs is vibrating in the water when sound passes through. And that changes the way the hairs move, which changes the swimming of the coral larva. So it's actually able... Yeah, cilia, exactly. So it's able to move towards the source of the sound, um, despite not having a brain, not having a central nervous system. So it's a really simple, basically inside-out ear that just moves around in the water trying to find the right sound. Um, we did some work just in uh, Curacao last uh, November where we were playing sounds to some of these coral larvae and they suddenly, as soon as they hear a healthy coral reef environment, start this spiralling behaviour which corkscrews down towards the, the bottom. Whereas if they're just in, in a, the sound of an open ocean, they're just drifting around in the water. So it really changes the way they move, which gives them a chance of finding a good place to go and make home. So they'll drift down and then then latch on and start a new. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, how are how are some of these species making the sound? There's different ways. So people will be really shocked. I was really shocked when you played some of your fish recordings and mm-hmm. the incredible grunts and croaks and squeaks and all yeah. sorts of things. How are fish making that sound? Mm. So the fish have a lot of different, they've evolved lots of different ways of making sounds. Some fish have very simple mechanical sounds, so they might snap their jaw shut to create a loud kind of crack sound, or they might grind the teeth in the back of their throat to create a kind of more rasping sound. Um, But other fish can produce more tonal sounds by, um, they have swim bladders um, inside the body of the fish, which they use to control their buoyancy. And by vibrating the wall of the swim bladder, they can create a resonant sound. Yeah, so some fish will literally hum all night. The midshipman fish will sit there and hum pretty much from dusk until dawn. Um, Other fish like uh, cod, haddock, um, produce a more kind of grunting sort of sound. 
Yeah. And then and then um, we've just literally been looking at some recordings recently where we don't even know what some of these fish are, but we can hear their sounds and characterize them based on the, the different characteristics. There's there's a pub laugh fish, which sounds exactly like a deep laugh across a pub, kind of <laughs> that sort of sound. Um, and there's uh, the whooping of a, of a damselfish species that we've fairly recently um, found is actually right the way through the Indo-Pacific region that produces like almost like a cooing dove whoop, 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 whoop kind of sound. So yeah, you know, the, the more we look, the more we find. And, and really we could carry on doing that for decades, but ideally more people getting involved, finding this diversity of sounds uh, in the ocean in different places. Yeah. So what are the practical applications of your research? Like how, how will it help with marine conservation and, and what kind of what's in the pipeline to use mm. this amazing knowledge? So, so there's several things that we're now doing with sound. The first is that we really can use it as a way of measuring health of an ecosystem. So if you want to monitor how environments are changing, then by going back to the same places and taking recordings, then that can be really useful as a time series. Um, and one of the worst places that we've uh, experienced doing that is on the Great Barrier Reef, where we've been using that as a really healthy reference site um, but then there was a, a mass bleaching event with, with very warm waters in, 19, in 2015, 2016. Um, and when we went back afterwards, the reef had gone quiet, the animals were dead, and the whole thing really was dying in front of our eyes. So that was really kind of valuable as a way of being able to measure the internal health of the reef, because it's the animals living inside the reef that we were listening for um, that were now missing. Um, but just to flip that on its head, what we also are able to do is by going to sites where there is better protection. So maybe it's been established as a marine protected area or there is uh, active restoration. We can listen over time as that reef recovers. So we can use sound as a way of measuring recovery. And that that really does fill you with joy when you can hear what was once a decimated you know rubble field now really starting to sound like a vibrant coral reef again and that's over you know only five years or so of restoration you can really hear the habitat recovering so, so you can use the sound recordings almost to call in the kind of pioneer species and then gradually the health of the reef builds up again well that's that's the other that's the real how to put it on steroids thing where you can take speakers down with you and when you start to restore an environment, you build new habitat, you start to put some corals back into an area where the corals have all died. And then you play the sounds, you really call in the next generation so they come and make that site their home. And quite quickly then, they produce sound and start calling in others. So, so it snowballs where you basically start the party and then just the sound of the party brings everybody else to come and join in you, so you uh, talked about it being like the nightclub door effect right yeah exactly exactly you hear this beat and you can't resist it and so suddenly all these you know as the as the sound gets louder more and more animals are attracted in and make it their home and leave, leave a little line of people outside so it looks more popular as well right <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah yeah we're getting their we're getting their uh, their uh, covid vaccination um apps to try and work their qr code out for the bouncer <laughs> Um, before we move off your kind of research and the detail of your research, I forgot to ask you about the, the cilia part and mm. the, the use of lasers, which blew my mind. Yeah, well, 
Blows my mind. I mean, all of this blows my mind as well. It's just, it's just, it's just so exquisite how evolution has allowed such a diversity of animals to be able to engage with their soundscape. Um, but um, so the coral lava is the size of a pinhead, and you imagine it looks like a, a you know, like a, a fuzzy tennis ball, basically, when you look at it. Um, but if you fire a minuscule laser onto an individual hair, then you get a reflection of it. And you can time how quickly the reflection comes back. So we're talking nanoseconds here. Um, but if that cilia is moving, then the time for it to, to for the for the um, reflection to come back changes as it moves towards you and away from you. And the difference in the time for it to re reflect back gives you a way of measuring how much that hair is moving. So then you can start playing sounds to the coral and measuring how the hairs start moving differently to understand which frequencies of sounds the corals are actually responding to. Um, and it really just gives us that opportunity to see how, how tuned to their environment these tiny little coral larvae are. That's incredible, isn't it? How, how mm. excited you can get a tiny pinhead <laughs> yeah. yeah we've spent many many happy days in the basement it has to be it it's, it's basically this this lab that's built onto a 15 meter cube of concrete so that it's absolutely stable you can't have any vibrations if anyone closes a door in the next building you've got to start again um but uh, it's amazing yeah incredible stuff yeah um so moving on then to changing planet britain's wildest this trip that mm. we did to kind of um, I guess get a baseline transect, sound transect of um, the west coast of the British Isles. We went from Cornwall up to the Hebrides and um, we found some interesting things along the way. Um, what did you kind of um, ask us to do um, and, and why? So what I was really interested in, given that you were going to be traveling from, you know, pretty much the, the channel up to the Hebrides, so the full length of the, the British Isles, uh, I was really interested in whether you could detect snapping shrimp as you went from south up to the north. Um, the reason for that is that snapping shrimp are generally a warmer water species. They're tiny, they're called pistol shrimps sometimes. They're little shrimps that live in burrows. They're about the size of your thumb. And they've got a claw about the size of your thumbnail, which they can fire a micro bubble forwards into the water from. And that bubble implodes and creates a very loud bang. So they're quite a distinct sound, but they're a sound that you hear in warm water. So I wanted to know how far north you could get before the snapping shrimp disappeared, because that would give a really good idea of where the boundary is between the warmer water species that spread down to kind of North Africa, up the Bay of Biscay, up kind of Portugal, Spain and, and France. And then the cold water species begin, which is which is those species that go up into the, the kind of the um, polar circle. Um, and so you were able to quite clearly by dropping the hydrophones over the side of your sailing boat, even when you were underway, you could hear the snapping shrimp in the recordings. Um, what what is that sizzling yeah. bacon sound kind of clicking? Yeah. Clicking. That's right. When there's lots of snapping shrimp, it really does sound either like rain pounding on a roof, on a tin roof, or sizzling bacon in a pan. That kind of constant crackling sound. Um, some of the snaps that you were detecting, even up into the um, into some of the big sea locks up in Scotland, you could then hear the echo off the, the, the opposite wall. There was this incredible kind of 
bang, and then the echo, bang, 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 as that snap was propagating through the water, because it really is an explosion of sound. Um, but really, to my amazement, you were finding these snapping shrimp pretty much all the way up to the um, up into the Hebrides, suggesting that as the waters are warming, the snapping shrimp range is now expanding right up through the British Isles. And that was a surprise for you to have it that far north. Yeah, definitely. I was expecting you to probably get them up to the north of Wales. Um, but any further, I was I was going to be surprised if you'd, you really detected them. It'd be really fascinating to be able to complete the circle and see what the North Sea has to well, offer. see if there's been go some on. talk over Christmas oh, time. Oh, you, <laughs> you can't get enough of it. The boat is still in Glasgow. We docked uh-huh. right it there. And uh-huh. um, Andy, our captain, was, you know, uh-huh. having a ponder. He said, this is the time of year now between Christmas and New Year that I start, you know, pondering and plotting yeah. some new yeah. projects. And uh, there's been mention of, you know, completing the mission to St Kilda, yeah, which we yeah. didn't get to do because yeah. of the weather. Yeah. Um, but there's also been mention of going to Svalbard. Oh, wow. Wow. That's very oh, far be... north. It'd be interesting yeah. to see. But um, I don't know if I'm ready to get on the boat again. I'll have to be honest. <laughs> yeah, land's only just started getting stable again. <laughs> Well, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. It, so I mean, maybe in a few months when I get the itch mm. again, I'll, I'll, uh, yeah. I'll consider it. But yeah, yeah. there's already well, talk of a part two. Great. I'd certainly be happy to send more recording gear up to Svelbard. That'd be phen- uh, phenomenal. Yeah, unbelievable. Mm. The mm. other, um, so the significance of the snapping shrimp getting up there is the snapping shrimp is just one species, but it's one that mm. we can record, we can listen to. It's very characteristic and it's a good mm. indicator species of what's happening to those changing ecosystems as the ocean is is warming. The mm. other one, so from kind of bottom of the food chain to top of the food chain that we saw a lot and we saw a big change in was a common dolphin, right. which again was kind of traditionally known as off the south and southwest coast mm. of England. Um, you know, mainly if you look at a book written 10 years ago, that's what you would yeah. read. Yeah. But the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust said it's now their most common, um, commonly cited species of cetacean up there. Amazing, amazing. I, I heard they even joined you at COP, didn't they? They did, right yeah. In the river. Yeah. yeah, no, that was right. actually, that was bottlenose dolphins. Oh, that was bottlenose, was it? Okay, but the common, okay, so the common dolphin are right up in the Hebrides. Traditionally yeah. known as a kind of warmer water yeah. species. We got them on our, our um, first um, kind of sail, and right. uh, we got bottlenose dolphins on our last sail in mm. up the Clyde. Um, but common dolphins, yeah, they said they went from zero sightings in um the early 2000s i think to um over 2000 sightings in 20 20- wow that's that's fascinating so obviously they're a, you know they're an apex predator and so they're probably and they're warm-blooded so they're probably less affected by the water temperature but are really affected by where their prey are so that suggests that you know they're following their prey much further north now um, and it's true that things like mackerel, horse mackerel even, are, are being caught right up, um, you know, the west coast of Ireland and up into the Hebrides. Yeah, crazy. Mm. Wow. Um, what is the significance? One of the things that we kind of struggled with, and we, when we checked in with you, we kind of mm. asked you what are your thoughts on this. But talking to someone who doesn't really have an interest or, or much knowledge of ocean ecosystems or, you know, what of it that, you know, the temperature in the Hebrides is increasing by half a degree every 10 years? So what? Or isn't it great that you're getting more biodiversity in these waters and things? But actually, what's the significance of this kind of broader thinking and in terms of kind of climate health and, and planetary health and things? Yeah, so so obviously rain shifts 
are um, something that, that, you know, they're worth us trying to understand where species are moving. If you are a, you know, a mid-latitude species, then actually moving a little bit further north, particularly up the coast of Europe, is not a problem. Um, if you're a, an Arctic species and the water's getting warmer, you haven't got anywhere to go. Um, so actually we see species being squeezed at the poles because the water's just getting simply too warm for those species to be able to survive. And similarly at the equator, where you've got the warm water species, they don't have anywhere to go. Um, or, sorry, there are no species that are adapted to the waters that are even warmer than that. And so, you know, we really fear that we could lose cold water species at the poles and actually start to create a bit of a void around the equator where it's, it's too warm for anything really to have adapted. So that's, that's definitely one of the concerns that we have. The other is that as species tend to move, you get winners and losers and you tend to get many more losers than winners. So you might identify one or two species that really take advantage of a new uh, habitat to live in, but, but you've often then lost a lot of species that are really providing the, the breadth of ecological function that you need in that ecosystem for it to be stable. Um, and so that's really why we try and monitor the movement of species as waters are warming. Yeah. And I guess it's the kind of the hidden factors of, again, like that game of Jenga, we start to play around or take out certain species from an ecosystem. There's knock on effects that we don't even understand yet. So the ecosystem services that the oceans provide can be at risk. And, you know, the amount of kind of oxygen that the ocean can produce in 10 or 20 years time could be affected by yeah, basically yeah. the health of the oceans declining over time yeah that's that's right and so you know so really trying to balance things like uh, fisheries so extracting some species from the sea harvesting species from the sea to make sure that that's done in a sustainable way to be able to work with the fishing industries to be uh, in a position to be able to sustainably target species that might not be in their waters at the moment, but might be the species that become the fishery in the future, um, and to maintain the habitats that species moving further north in, in the Northern Hemisphere will depend on in the future, the nursery grounds, the breeding grounds, the, um, the uh, nesting sites, the spawning sites. Um, means that we've got to do quite a lot of joined up thinking to try and work with nature while the waters continue to warm. And obviously that's the short term um, stopgap while we work out how we stop the waters warming, how we actually try and arrest global warming and try and really tackle climate change. So it's buying us a bit of extra time to really work with nature. Um, but ultimately, we've got to start working, working completely with nature um, to restore a better balance. Absolutely. Um, now, as I said at the start, you describe yourself as an ocean optimist. Uh, there were times on the trip, definitely, that I considered myself a bit of an ocean pessimist. And I was uh, <laughs> definitely had a few days where I wobbled and I thought, what are we doing to the planet? And going to COP26, where mm. they didn't actually put ocean health on the main agenda to talk about. What um, I know my thoughts on that were, you know, that's absolutely crazy. And that's one of the reasons we did the mission and, and wanted to bring something, bring these sound recordings to COP26 and play them to the global leaders and try and get some discussion going. But what were your thoughts in the run up to COP26 and hearing specifically that ocean health wasn't on their main agenda? So so obviously there is still a disconnect at the, the top end of the political system. 
um, and our much broader societal understanding of nature and the value of nature. Um, I think there was certainly much more. Maybe it was blah, 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 but maybe it was a little bit of scientific literacy that's starting to get into world leaders in the way that that, um, things were being talked about in the main auditorium. But the thing that really excited me about COP was just the energy of particularly younger people, particularly underrepresented communities that were given a platform, particularly uh, um, the female contingency um, of the delegates. And I think it really did kind of contrast. There was there was a stark contrast with lots of, you know, older, older men that were leading the countries. And then this beautiful breadth and diversity of people who cared passionately probably had more to lose um, being younger but also had more to gain by really trying to change the dialogue and change the the patterns of behavior so it did I I think it was definitely easy to either walk into the half glass uh, the glass half empty or the glass half full room um, at COP but it 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 made me feel like there was a better connection with some of the decisions that need to happen. Um, and then to see, you know, the amazing work that you were doing, that lots of the marine charities were doing to really bring into the conversation the ocean and our dependence on ocean health as part of the, the, the way of tackling climate change. And um, this idea of blue carbon being one of the best ways of trying to get towards net zero. Um, I think was really exciting. Um, and, and in terms of ocean optimism, I think the thing that really just does fill me with that hope is the ability of nature, given half a chance, to be able to recover. You know, if, if, if you stop fishing an over-depleted stock, quite quickly it can bounce back in many cases. If you replant seagrass or mangroves or coral reefs or kelp beds, within five years, you really see uh, a thriving ecosystem. And so I think it's, it's really in our gift to go and put the world back together again. Um, you know, we talk about rewilding on land and I think rewilding some of the ocean ecosystems too. Um, uh, is something that it's not rocket science. It's something that just takes a lot of a lot of commitment and and action. Yeah, we saw that one of the kind of things we were you know desperate to do, very keen to do, was visit those people and projects doing really inspiring things with the ocean. Um, as we went up, so we went and saw mm. the kind of restored seagrass beds from like year one to year five, year ten, and the difference in the in the biodiversity. Scuba dive or mm. snorkeling on those seagrass beds was was really great to see. Um, how are we do you think in terms of kind of UK waters we wanted to bring the climate message home and say look Mm -hmm. right on our doorstep this is happening and this is Mm -hmm. what can be done but how are we in terms of UK kind of ocean health and protection Um, are you optimistic is there obviously there's a lot more that can be done but yeah so there's more that can be done I think we are um, certainly in the British Isles we're doing a good job of rolling out offshore renewable energy Um, Now, that comes with a few environmental challenges, but we're also tackling those real time as we're building wind farms. We're finding ways of building them quietly, of cabling them in ways that doesn't um, affect marine life. Um, We probably 
are doing better than we were 30 years ago, say when I first started surfing, in terms of ocean water quality. Um, there's quite a lot of um, uh, attention at the moment on river water quality and I think there's a lot of work that can still be done by modernising the water um, um, uh, the, you know, the water companies of, of the British Isles to try and make sure that we're really containing sewage and we're, um, we're controlling the quality of effluent. But probably we are doing a better job of water quality than we were in the past. Um, in terms of fisheries, uh, there are definitely signs of recovery in some of the fish stocks that have been overfished. Um, so I think that there is opportunity for us to do that ever more sustainably. And there are more people who are going to the coast. You know, and I think that's the first thing that anyone can do if they care about the ocean is to go and jump in the sea and just connect, find a way of dipping their toe or looking into a rock pool or even visiting an aquarium in a, in a city um, to just make that first connection with uh, marine life. Um, and that's one thing that obviously the, the big natural history filmmakers have done a, a wonderful job of in terms of bringing many of the marine ecosystems into our living rooms and making us um, feel some connection um, to the marine environment. So, yeah, that's brilliant. And I, I was going to say, like on your last point about getting people to engage with the ocean, I grew up landlocked um you know and i'm a total nature geek and nerd and i was always reading books and identifying plants and bugs and animals and all sorts of things but when it comes to even rock pooling or kind of ocean um ecosystems i i'm a newbie you know what i mean i mm -hmm. just don't have the the access to that growing up so i didn't really know a lot about it how would you you know how would you encourage people to get involved to engage and maybe something about you know what we've learned with citizen science and what we did as total amateurs in terms of audio acoustic recordings mm. and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the really uh, kind of uh, satisfying participatory things that anybody can get involved with is a beach clean. Um, so in the, in the UK, the Surface Against Sewage and the Marine Conservation Society organise pretty much on a weekly basis beach cleans around the country. Some of those are on rivers as well, so it doesn't have to mean going to the coast. And that does two things. One is, well, no, it does lots of things. One of the things it does is to clean up the, the litter that can, that can obviously entangle wildlife but, and is also quite unsightly and can put uh, leech chemicals into the environment and so on but very often you make all sorts of interesting uh, biology discoveries while you're doing it you find you know mermaids purses the egg cases of some of the sharks and the rays that live in the area you find um, washed up crab shells you find all sorts of things that connect you to the animals in the ocean and you find a group of people who are all interested in the same thing. So that can definitely be something that anybody can go and do one, one weekend a year. And that brings you into a position where you, you feel like you've, you've positively made some, some, uh, some uh, action towards um, improving ocean health. In terms of the bioacoustics, until fairly recently, acoustic recording equipment was very expensive. It was really, you know, the gift of, first of all, the Navy and then some bioacousticians, people like me, um, who, uh, with a grant, were able to buy the gear that you need to take a recording in the ocean. Um, but very much more recently, there are um, 
recording devices now on the market, which are probably about £100. So they're either sports cameras, things like GoPros or um, some of the other sports cameras that you can put on uh, put, uh, onto the seabed or hang over the side of a boat or off the end of a pier. And while it's filming, it's also recording. But there are now recording devices, things like audio moths, that you can put onto the seabed or you can drop over the side of your boat or canoe or when you're fishing off the end of the pier. And that will record for anything up to about three months, depending on how you set it up. And that gives you an opportunity for not such a big outlay to start to really engage with the soundscape of the environment that you're in. And if you find people like me who are interested in those recordings, then there's, there's a whole community. We work very much kind of in the public domain, keep everything open source, um, that share the recordings. And so for biologists, it's an amazing resource that we now have recordings coming from amateur recorders all over the world who are f making discoveries that we could only dream of making because they're in places that we could only ever dream of going to. But those are also then libraries that are being used by other people. So musicians are starting to use them for inspiration, listening to the, to the marine environment and using that as the raw materials for making music or for making acoustic art. Um, and that can be in some ways one of the most powerful uses of those recordings because often sound can convey information in a way that we struggle to either put it into graphs or put it into writing um, or even put it into anything visual. In a dark room with the right soundscape, you really do connect with that natural world in a different way. Um, and to hear the difference between a healthy and a degraded or a healthy and now a dead coral reef site or just to hear how a coral reef can recover and to feel the energy coming back into that ecosystem is really exciting. So I think hmm, that's, that's definitely something that anybody can get involved with. Yeah, that's one of the reasons as well that we decided, you know, bringing the ocean sounds. We're doing all this research. We're listening to the ocean. Um, we want world leaders to listen to the ocean at COP26 as well. So we mm. created a music track. Um, mm. It's on Spotify. I'm going to take this opportunity, actually, to take a little break in our conversation and insert the music track here. So people can hear what we heard, some of your recordings, some recordings that the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust did, but also the, the crew of um, My Changing Planet did as well. So mm. have a listen here. Insert that one. Yeah. Um, great, Steve. So, um, I mean, hopefully that did make an impact. I think I couldn't agree with you more that actually getting out and getting involved in something as simple as a monthly beach clean or, you know, river litter picking or something like that, finding a community of people that care as well is a really, really strong way to kind of alleviate the eco anxiety that we're all feeling about about our planet and, and what's happening. Um, would you have any kind of messages of hope for, for people and, and the direction we're going in? 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's right, actually, that, that it's very easy to become consumed by eco-anxiety and almost become paralysed by it, feel like the problem is too great and anything that you personally can do is, is too insignificant to make it worthwhile. But actually, every action that you take can be positive. And if lots of people start, you know, the, your, your friends, your family, see what you're doing and start to do a little bit with you, then quite quickly the, the behavioural change that you see in society um, can really take us into a much better place. And that's, you know, I, th- I think it's often something like a beach clean that might be your entry into environmentalism um, in a way that you might then come home from that and think well I'm just going to think a bit more about what I eat tonight and then I'm going to think a bit more about how I got to the beach and whether I could get there a different way next time or you know what temperature I'm going to set my thermostat to or where I might go on holiday and things like that so I think it just helps you to connect with nature not in a way that it becomes you know restrictive or negative or, or limiting but actually it becomes more and more enriching and fulfilling um, and it all starts with the first little action. Absolutely, yeah. It's not about doing everything perfectly. It's about just do, taking little steps and trying to be mindful of what, what yeah, your impact yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think bigger picture thinking as well. I, I, th- I feel that we can all get into like individualistic thinking and what am I doing? And I'm, I'm the reason that, you know, the planet is burning and all this is happening. But actually, I think t- thinking bigger picture and getting active and getting involved with writing to your MP and trying to get kind of governments and people in power to do the right things on a bigger scale, because that's where the main impact is coming from, isn't it? So do engage with kind of politics and writing to your MP on, on things. Yeah, I totally agree there. You know, we've elected these people to be to lead us to or to represent us, really. And so if what we say is that we would like them to represent us by making better decisions for the environment and we'll support them to do that, then they'll start to turn that into policy. Um, but until, until they, they realise that they've got the backing of their, vote, their electorate, they're kind of hamstrung um, because, because otherwise we end up stuck in a short-termism um, system. So definitely writing to your MP and encouraging them to make the bold decisions, I think, is a really valuable thing we can all do. It does. I've changed my mind on that. I used to be a, a bit of a, oh, that won't make a difference. My little mm. letter. But if everyone writes that letter, yeah. it makes a big, big difference. Yeah. 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 So to, to finish off, Steve, it's been great talking to you again. Um, mm. What kind of uh, new projects are coming up? I see you've had some research in the press recently. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah. So we have been working at a big coral reef restoration site in Indonesia. Um, which over the last five years, working with an enormous army of of, um, local communities in Sulawesi, we've restored um, hundreds of square metres of coral reef. And by listening to those reefs, we now are able to really identify the sounds that are coming back into those healthy habitats and show that they are recovering to become acoustically like the healthy reefs that they would once have been so that's really exciting Um, and then today we've got a paper out um, which shows that the audio moth is actually a really good way of getting people out there and taking recordings just like you and your crew were gonna say that sounds (laughs) absolutely you know it's 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 it really is available to anybody to be able to go and have that first listen to the ocean now Um, so those are two things that we're working on at the moment Brilliant. And um, mm. you've also got, I think I want to get you a little plug in. You're you're working on a, a really exciting master's programme, aren't you? 
Yeah, so so obviously one of the things that I uh, I think is really important that some scientists get involved with is science communication, actually bringing science um, into society, but not just, you know, remember communication is a two-way process, so not simply trying to educate society about science, but to go and listen to what are the, what are the real societal needs that scientists should be focusing on. And to turn it into a dialogue that builds the trust of people who don't work in science, um, in the scientific process to try and understand how we collect data, what the data mean, how we interpret them. Um, And so it's going to be a master's course at the University of Bristol starting in September 2023, where we're going to be working alongside the natural history filmmakers that make Bristol uh, such an amazing place to live, Um, the investigative journalism uh, journalists, um, the radio media, uh, print media, um, but also then groups that work in schools tackling eco-anxiety, building um, a a greater representation of um, underrepresented uh, communities in science. Um, So it's going to be a really fascinating kind of uh, melting pot of ideas. We're mixing the faculties of art, humanities, modern languages and science to all all team up together um, to really think about how we um, how we um, we really kind of weave science and an understanding of science better into society. That's really amazing. I I think uh, I might apply for that myself. <laughs> You'd be very <laughs> take, welcome. Sure, I'll yeah. take a sabbatical. I think and uh, <laughs> and come and do that because it sounds brilliant. And I think it's much needed. You know that kind of science isn't this kind of stuffy. Um, kind of very academic thing that is not really communicating with normal people and with the arts and with kind of other kind of um, kind of I guess um, viewpoints and, and opinions and and, and mm. ways of communicating. It's really important, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, great, great. Um, any other kind of projects coming up, or where can people find out more about the work that you do? Uh, well, I mean, certainly if, if you if you go onto Twitter at Dr. Steve Simpson, um, then there's there's generally a kind of uh, constant flow of information coming from my research group who are very active. Um, we've got more work that's going to be going on in Curacao this year. Um, we uh, what else have we got going on? We'll be doing um, some more work with musicians through the year. Um, including building up to a symphony based on underwater recordings that we've got premiering in uh, um, in October. Yeah, excellent. So, uh, yeah, lots of exciting things going on. Great. And any other recommendations? I often ask guests at the end, any other recommendations on other interesting people or projects to follow on social media or even websites and things where people can stay in touch or learn more about kind of ocean health and activism? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think the Marine Conservation Society do a fabulous job, um, as do Surfers Against Sewage, um, you know, who've, who've really gone from being, a, you know, a very small campaigning group to now being one of the, you know, they've got the ear of government. They really are able to, to challenge environmental um, policy um, to make sure that we do what we can to improve the, the the state of the ocean Uh, marine conservation society do a very good um good fish guide so for people who eat seafood to be able to think sustainably about what they're buying and eating um so that's definitely a good one to have a look at brilliant yeah Mm. highly recommend those as well i do follow them thanks so much it's been great again catching up um in the new year 
and uh, I will keep you posted on uh, St Kilda and Spalbert. I look forward to the first postcards. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thanks again, Steve. Great. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Thanks, guys. If you've enjoyed that episode, please do hit like and subscribe and tune in again to later episodes of Sean's Wildlife Podcast. We're now up to about 40 episodes. So if you're a new listener, welcome. And you've got a good backlog to get through. But it's over and out for another episode from me. Thanks. <laughs>